hello to my little friend. Hello everyone, welcome to episode number 18 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. I am Glenn Peoples, your host and producer and director and recorder and music writer and everything else to do with this show presently until I get a co-host. This week, we're not going to be looking at philosophy or politics, it's just going to be straight theology. The title of this episode is Athanasius, Atonement and Annihilation. I suppose I could call it Athanasius, Incarnation, Atonement, and Annihilation, but that's kind of getting a bit long. Uh, speaking of long, the episode itself is going to be fairly long. It's based on a presentation that I gave some time ago now. I believe it was last year, earlier on in the year. Or was it this year? I forget. Maybe in this year. At the annual meeting of the Conditional Immortality Association. And so basically I'm going to be presenting that seminar, public talk, in the form of a presentation here on the podcast. So without any further ado, let's get straight into it. Athanasius, Saint Athanasius sets out his work, his famous work on the Incarnation, in several thematic sections. He started out talking about the state of humanity as God created it. He then moved on to talking about what happened as a result of the fall and sin, and then about how and why God remedies the situation. He then moves on to apologetical arguments, defending the claim that God did make atonement in Christ against um, skeptical objections. And there's really a series of talks lurking in those subjects that could be put to very good use as an explanation of the Christian faith, but I'm going to pick out just one thread that runs through all of them. Jesus died for sinners. Now that kind of sounds too simple for a, for a lengthy talk. Why do I need to tell you that? Why especially do I need to quote the long-dead 4th century Bishop of Alexandria to make a point as simple as this? Well, the reason is here. What people say has implications, whether they appreciate those implications or not. When a person says, Jesus died for me, this confession of faith has consequences whether the confessor sees what those consequences are or not. I'm drawing on Athanasius here because he explained so much of the content of why Jesus came and what his death achieved that those consequences begin to appear on the horizon in a way that is appreciated by very few contemporary evangelicals, Catholics or Orthodox. Athanasius gave Christianity, Catholic Christianity for that matter, very good reasons to doubt what so much of it affirmed and still affirms about human nature, the death of Christ, and the consequences of sin. So let's proceed. First of all, let's look at humanity as God intended it. 
Athanasius begins his work on the Incarnation by talking about the human race, since it was humanity that God would become in the Incarnation. He begins where humanity begins in Scripture, in Genesis. Since in this talk my main interest in, in Athanasius is what his views imply about human destiny, my main interest in what he says about the creation of humanity is in what he says about human immortality, or lack thereof. God made many creatures, including human beings. Compared to the other creatures, man, Athanasius wrote, was, quote, created above the rest, but incapable of independent perseverance. That's from chapter 3. Athanasius explains that God gave mankind a gift, creating him in God's image and, quote, giving them a portion even of the power of his own word, so that having, as it were, a kind of reflection of the word and being made rational, they might be able to abide ever in blessedness, living the true life which belongs to the saints in paradise, end quote. I'm not saying this particular claim is true, but it's a claim widely made in traditional Christian theology that human intellect and rationality is what constitutes the image of God. So, in Athanasius' vocabulary, being perfectly human as humanity was created was to reflect the image of the true word, that is, Jesus, who would become the perfect man. As long as humanity maintained the reflection of that perfection, they would live forever in blessedness because God would continue to give them life. From time to time we hear theologians offering views on whether or not, before the fall, humanity is depicted in the Bible as immortal, with the potential to lose that immortality, or mortal, with the potential of gaining immortality if they passed the test, as it were, that God set before them. Rather than speaking about humanity as being either mortal or immortal, Athanasius presents humanity as being contingent or dependent on the reflection of the image of God. Notice, it's not humanity's immortality that was contingent on maintaining this reflection, although that's true as a matter of consequence. What he says is, humanity is contingent, contingent on this fact. This becomes all the more clear when Athanasius moves on to talk about the fall of humanity, noting there that humanity does not merely lose immortality, but it loses itself, it loses humanity. So let's move on to the, the fall and death of humanity. Athanasius narrates for us the now familiar story of the fall taken from Genesis. What exactly did God warn Adam about? A quote from Athanasius, again from chapter 3. He, that is God, brought them into his garden and gave them a law so that if they kept the grace and remained good, they might still keep the life in paradise without sorrow or pain or care besides having the promise of incorruption in heaven, but that if they transgressed and turned back and became evil, they might know that they were incurring that corruption and death which was theirs by nature. No longer to live in paradise, but cast out from it from that time forth to die and to abide in death and corruption. End quote. Death was ours by nature, Athanasius wrote. Humanity was created capable of dying, having a nature that could not endure forever, able to pursue incorruption by keeping the law that God set before us, but also able to turn back to the only thing that their own resources could ultimately give them, 
nothing. Death and corruption whence they came. Reflecting on God's sentence upon Adam, you shall surely die, or literally, dying you shall die, Athanasius again talks about man never escaping the state he was in, but abiding in it. He says, But by dying ye shall die, what else could be meant than not merely dying, but also abiding forever in the corruption of death? I'm fairly confident that from time to time you've heard pastors or theologians commenting on God's sentence, You shall surely die. In all likelihood, you will have heard people talking about what Adam, or why Adam, did not drop dead on that very day, and the answer is given that Adam entered into a state of spiritual death on that very day. And so for this reason we're sometimes told that verses like Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death, refer to something far more dreadful than mere dying, but rather to spiritual separation, and ultimately eternal separation from God. That's not the outlook taken by Athanasius here, that's for sure. In reply to this outlook, which I regard to be a, a perfectly false outlook, I offer the following rebuttal from Athanasius in what he said next about the consequences of the fall. He says, For transgression of the commandment was turning them back into their natural state, so that just as they have had their being out of nothing, so also, as might be expected, they might look for corruption into nothing in the course of time. For if, out of a former state of non-existence, they were called into being by the presence and loving-kindness of the Word, it followed naturally that when men were bereft of the knowledge of God and were turned back to that what was not, for what is evil is not, but what is good is, they should, since they derive their being from God who is, be everlastingly bereft even of being. In other words, that they should be disintegrated and abide in death and corruption. End quote. That's pretty explicit stuff. Whether Athanasius himself countenanced the thought of any such thing as spiritual death, he will have none of it here in his work on the Incarnation. Athanasius closes the door to any such interpretation of his own comments about death. We've already seen his claim that when death came through sin, human beings began not to enter a new state of perpetual accursedness and misery, although there is no doubt that the state into which humanity entered was accursed and miserable, but to actually turn back into their natural state, that is, return to a former state. That state is a state of, quote, what is not, wherein people disintegrate and abide in death and corruption. They lose not merely happiness or embodiment, which is what you might think if you were a very strong dualist, who thought that when you die you simply escape the body. They become, he says, bereft of being, end quote, itself. Let's put it bluntly, they cease to exist. In the contemporary world of popular evangelical theology, Athanasius would be getting himself into serious trouble saying these things. In fact, given Athanasius' own view of human nature, I think he's in considerable tension with himself. But I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in rescuing him from himself. These statements about the fall to appear to be crystal clear. God created humanity out of nothing. God is the source of their being, and when humanity rejects God, it loses its very being. That's direct. That's a very simple and uncontrived line of reasoning. But 
In an unrelated work called Against the Heathen, Athanasius's concern is to lay out the Church's teaching on the soul. There, he claims quite dogmatically that the soul is immortal. That's a direct quote. He seeks to prove this claim by telling the reader that the soul is distinct from the body, that the soul is the source of the body's motion, and that the soul goes beyond the body in imagination and thought. Therefore, so we are supposed to conclude, it is immortal. Of course, one who is not already some sort of dualist, favorably disposed to the idea of the soul's immortality, is not going to grant these three claims at all. Not at least if Athanasius meant what most dualists of his time meant when they used the word soul. There is a parallel between Athanasius' argument here and his argument in the Incarnation. In the Incarnation, he argues in effect that God is separate from creation. He is the source of creation's vitality or movement, and that God surpasses creation in creative power. Therefore, when creation, us, separates itself from God, it dies. When discussing the immortality of the soul, he treats the soul like God and the body like creation. And when the soul leaves the body, or rather when the body leaves the soul, which, whichever way you put it, the body dies. He believed, of course, that the soul was part of creation. Now that should have given him pause, calling to mind his argument about the Incarnation, and holding back his tenacious argument for the soul's immortality. I'm not going to try and solve his problems for him. He contradicted himself. That's not my fault. If there is a lesson here, it's that we are on much surer footing as Christians when we are spelling out the big, obvious truths of the gospel than when we are trying to defend a complicated framework of theology because it is what the church teaches. The next question that he addresses in his work on the Incarnation is, why did God become man? Athanasius turns to speak more directly about the Incarnation now, but before doing so, he justifies his lengthy discussion of humanity in the fall that has just come beforehand. He says, You are wondering, perhaps, for what possible reason, having proposed to speak of the Incarnation of the Word, we are at present treating the origin of mankind. But this, too, properly belongs to the aim of our treatise. For in speaking of the appearance of the Saviour amongst us, we must needs speak also of the origin of men, that you may know that the reason of his coming down was because of us, and that our transgressions called forth the loving-kindness of the word, that the Lord should both make haste to help us and appear among men. The fall, says Athanasius, dishonors God. God's character is impugned if he allows his workmanship to remain unredeemed. But in explaining why, Athanasius gets himself into more hot water with contemporary evangelicals, and again with himself, but I quite agree with him. He says, The human race, then, was wasting. God's image was being effaced, and his work ruined. Either, then, God must forego his spoken word by which man had incurred ruin, or that which had shared in the being of the word must sink back again into destruction, in which case God's design would be defeated. Was God's goodness to suffer this? But if so, why had man been made? It would have been weakness, not goodness, on God's part. 
That's from the heading of chapter 6. So he says, If God had done nothing to redeem fallen man, then creation would have been a waste of time, since humanity would have vanished again as though God had never created them. They were sinking, as Athanasius put it, back again into destruction. The use of the word back and again, showing that by destruction, Athanasius meant exactly what today's annihilationists mean when they talk about death and destruction being the consequences of sin. Death here is portrayed by Athanasius not as a transition to a less than desirable state, much less the inheritance of an eternal destiny of conscious separation from God, but rather an undoing of God's creative work, and a return to the prior state of affairs, just like Ecclesiastes 12.7, by the way. This is made uncomfortably clear for those with traditional views of human nature and death. When Athanasius goes on to elaborate in chapter 6, he says, Man was perishing. The rational man made in God's image was disappearing, and the handiwork of God, of God, stuttering there, was in the process of dissolution. For death, as I said above, gained from that time forth a legal hold over us, and it was impossible to evade the law, since it had been laid down by God because of the transgression, and the result was, in truth, at once monstrous and unseemly. For it were monstrous, firstly, that God, having spoken, should prove false, that when once he had ordained, that man, if he transgressed the commandment, should die the death, after the transgression man should not die, but God's word should be broken. For God would not be true, if, when he had said that we should die, man died not. Again, it were unseemly that creatures once made rational, and having partaken of the word, should go to ruin, and turn again towards non-existence by the way of corruption. For it were not worthy of God's goodness that the things he had made should waste away, because of the deceit practised on men by the devil. Especially it was unseemly to the last degree that God's handicraft among men should be done away, either because of their own carelessness or because of the deceitfulness of evil spirits. End quote. So, what would have happened if God had not intervened in the Incarnation? Man would have perished, said Athanasius. His creation at the hand of God would have been undone. God's handiwork would be dissolved, and we would turn again into non-existence. It's as though Athanasius is trying to make it as obvious as possible what he thinks about human nature and death. So how utterly queer his comments elsewhere on the immortality of the soul appear in light of this absolutely unambiguous explanation of what happens in death. And so the Incarnation was God's way of undoing this travesty. He says, And thus taking from our bodies one of like nature, because we were under the penalty of corruption of death, he gave it over to death in the stead of all, and offered it to the Father, doing this, moreover, of his loving kindness, to the end that, firstly, all being held to have died in him, the law involving the ruin of men might be undone inasmuch as its power was fully spent in the Lord's body and had no longer holding ground no longer holding ground against men, his peers, and that secondly, whereas men had turned toward corruption, 
he might turn them again toward incorruption, and quicken them from death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of the resurrection, banishing death from them like straw from the fire. That's from chapter 8. So the word, that is Christ, taught Athanasius, became incarnate, incarnate for our sakes, that he might offer himself to the Father in our stead, and redeem us through his oblation and sacrifice. That's actually from a different work, but it's making the same point. It's from his festal letter number 10, paragraph 10. It's sometimes alleged that a penal substitution view of the atonement, that is, the idea that Jesus took upon himself the wrath and consequences of sin for our sake, or in our place, it's sometimes alleged that this view of the atonement did not emerge until the time of the Reformation. I simply beg to differ. Perhaps the Reformation saw an explosion of interest in the idea because of its connection to the doctrine of justification by faith, but the idea is clearly here in Athanasius. Jesus took on the consequences of sin in my place. Here we come to a fork in the road, because it opens up other subjects that could be pursued. Athanasius was a champion of Christian orthodoxy, and of the doctrine of the Trinity in particular, a doctrine I wholeheartedly embrace. But what does it mean for Athanasius, as a devout Trinitarian, to say that sin causes the undoing of humanity and death and a return to non-existence, and that Jesus, the divine Son of God and second person of the Trinity, became man and suffered the consequences of sin? That's a huge theological issue. Was he undone? Did the Trinity cease to exist when Jesus died, only to have the band reunite, as it were, when Jesus rose? Now, there is a myriad of issues there. Why, a very brief summary is that Jesus did not cease to exist because he did not see corruption. If you look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, it was of great importance to this evangelist on the day of Pentecost. He did not see decay, but remained in the tomb until God raised him. I'll, I'll just leave that there without pursuing the complex issues in any further depth. But even that, I think, is too much for Athanasius. He, and I think this is a mistake, he makes a way out of actually having to say that the word disappeared or died by, on the one hand, talking about Christ submitting himself to death instead of all, which for humans meant an undoing of creation and a disappearance back into the non-existence prior to creation. But on the other hand, he wants to talk about Christ only taking to himself a human body which was not coessential with his person, and submitting that to death on behalf of all, and not even offering himself. He says this at times in the work on the Incarnation, and even more explicitly elsewhere, where he says that the body was not really part of Christ, but rather Christ was taking and using a body. He says that in his letter number 59 to Epictetus in paragraph 4 and 8. In my view, I think that this made Athanasius, at points at least, a little too close to the Gnostics, who denied that Christ became flesh at all, because flesh is corrupt and spirit is good. I think he was at his best 
when he really did speak about Christ becoming one of us and offering himself in our place. But setting that aside, what does this ad hoc maneuver do to Athanasius' exposition of the Incarnation and Atonement? He had already, as I showed you, in crystal clarity spelt out that humanity had turned from its source of being and so was returning to nothingness again, and that Jesus stood in our place, taking the consequences of sin in our stead. He became one of us, to suffer and die as one of us. In the treatise on the Incarnation, this is spelt out clearly, from start to finish. It is biblical, it is consistent. But what now, when we add in this foreign piece of theology about Jesus merely taking a human body? allowing it, rather than him, to be nailed to the cross, while Jesus himself suffers none of the things described in the work on the Incarnation. In this view, Jesus does not suffer the destruction that was coming to sinners in our place, but he watches on as the body does the work for him. This, the consequences is an unmitigated disaster for the Atonement. The very purpose of the Incarnation is undone. On the face of it, a strong dualist might want to defend this view. After all, he might say, the consequences of sin is not the death of the soul. These things just never die, after all, only the body. Therefore Jesus only had to take a body and have it killed, and he has done the job. But the traditionalist, that is the dualist who believes in eternal torment as well, who says this, has not carefully read Athanasius' work on the Incarnation. The consequences of the fall are said to be not a new state of bodily death while the soul lives, but rather a return to the destruction of humanity prior to the creation. Unless Athanasius wants to say that the soul of Adam enjoyed an eternal pre-incarnate life before creation, there is no dualist reading of the work on the incarnation. This is why it is vain, for example, as I mentioned earlier, to, to appeal to Ecclesiastes 12.7 as a proof text of dualism. The body shall return to the dust as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Just like in Athanasius, it uses the word return. So it's a reversal, an undoing, a re return to a prior state, not a new mode of life, rather a return to the state of affairs before there was life. So let's offer some thoughts in closing. Let's say for a moment that what Athanasius says about the Incarnation and Atonement in his book on the Incarnation is correct. I'll say that because I think it is basically true, basically biblical. If it is, then there is only one conclusion that we can draw about the consequences of not having your sin atoned for by the incarnate Christ. Nobody has stood in our place. Nobody has reunited us to God, the source of life in Him we live and move and have our being. Nobody has, as it were, drank the poison that was in our cup. Everything that Athanasius said about the fall, the reversal and undoing of creation, the dissolution of our being, and the sinking back into destruction, if Christ has not taken our place, then all of these things will come to us without any remedy. Athanasius did not believe in the final annihilation of the wicked, but he gave himself and us every reason 
to do so. It would be a shame to leave anyone with the impression that Athanasius' work on the Incarnation was all negative, telling us all the bad things that sin does, and that Jesus suffered a horrible death, and that those who reject Christ will die that death themselves. That wasn't the main point of the book, or of, indeed, the Incarnation of Jesus itself. Athanasius' work on the Incarnation is a work about redemption. When Jesus came into the world, he did so to do the work of an artist, or rather, as the master copy that the artist used. That might sound a little bit weird, so here's what Athanasius says that explains that metaphor. A portrait, once effaced, must be restored from the original. Thus the Son of the Father came to seek, save, and regenerate. No other way was possible. Blinded himself, man could not see to heal. The witness of creation had failed to preserve him, and could not bring him back. The word alone could do so. But how? Only by revealing himself as man. So as it were, the original copy of humanity, the blueprint, came into the world, so that the marred and damaged copy could be restored according to the master plan. In becoming a man, Christ taught man to know God. In dying, he died for us, but in rising, he became the first fruits, perfectly bearing that restored image that we will one day bear. And so it's appropriate to finish this talk on a positive note from Athanasius, because this was the point of the Incarnation. He says, For that death is destroyed, and that the cross has become the victory over it, and that it has no more power but is verily dead, this is no small proof, or rather an evident warrant, that it is despised by all Christ's disciples, and that they take the aggressive against it, and no longer fear it, but by the sign of the cross, and by faith in Christ, tread it down as dead. For of old, before the divine sojourn of the Saviour took place, even to the saints death was terrible, and all wept for the dead, as though they perished. But now that the Saviour has raised his body, death is no longer terrible. For all who believe in Christ tread it under as nothing, and choose rather to die than to deny their faith in Christ. For they surely know that when they die they are not destroyed, but actually live and become incorruptible through the resurrection. And there the presentation draws to a close on a deeply theological and resoundingly joyous note. I haven't done one of these for a while, so I thought it might be fun to do a blog roundup. This time around I'm going to be offering a sample of some of the stuff that's out there. I've discovered some stuff that I wasn't aware of before, but which is very good. In particular, go to www.edwardfesser.com, E-D-W-A-R-D-F-E-S-E-R, edwardfesser.com. Edward Fesser is, let me see who is Edward Fesser. He is a writer and philosopher living in Los Angeles. He teaches at Pasadena City College. Now, he was also one of the examiners of my Ph.D. thesis on the place of religion in the public square, but I wasn't aware of this site until recently. 
He has a whole bunch of really interesting articles there, and he also has a, a blog site, edwardfraser.blogspot.com. I've discovered that his primary interests are exactly the same as my primary interests. He says, my primary academic research interests are in the philosophy of mind, moral and political philosophy, and philosophy of religion. Well, what do you know? So are mine. He's got some good stuff to say, and more or less sharing my perspective on a variety of things, but approaching them often from a very different point of view. He's a, a traditional Roman Catholic. I am clearly not. And yet we have a great deal in common, I'm discovering. He's basically a conservative with some libertarian tendencies. I identify that position with classical liberalism. I know that he's not terribly happy with that position, but I'll forgive him. Um, yeah, so I recommend you go and check him out if you're at all interested in the kind of thing that I present here at this podcast and blog. You'll probably like a lot of what he has to say over at his blog and website as well, Edward Fesser. Tell him I sent you. He may even remember who I am. And speaking of really good Catholic thinkers, Edward T. Oakes, Oakes spelled O-A-K-E-S, Edward T. Oakes, S-J, over at First Things, the Journal of Religion, Culture, and Public Life, www.firstthings.com, wrote an article that I've just become aware of today, actually, called Are Protestants Heretics? He is himself a Catholic writer, a very good one from what I, what I can see, one who I'd like to read a bit more from, and so I'll be doing some searching for material by him. Teaches theology at the University of St. Mary of the Lake. I'm not sure where that is. He writes an article, Are Protestants Heretics? He concludes that they are not, and I think it's a brilliant, balanced, and very sane Catholic perspective on why it is stupid and foolish, unhelpful, unclear uh, for Catholic bloggers and web ranters out there to be denouncing Protestants as not merely wrong, but heretics. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything by revealing too much of the detail of his article. It is very good, but basically he explains what heresy is, uh, why the differences between Protestantism per se and Catholicism per se are not differences that invoke the charge of heresy. And it's an article that I highly commend to you over at firstthings.com. Do a search for it. Edward T. Oakes, Are Protestants Heretics? Uh, one of the most edifying things I have read recently. Let's look at a couple more things out there that I think you should uh, get your teeth sunk into, metaphorically speaking. And it's not all good. Um, I came across a website which looked promising, and in fact still is promising, has many good things to offer. It's called the Apologetics Resource Center. Uh, www.arcapologetics.org has a lot of good scholars there, has a lot of good articles, has some audio audio talks, but you have to pay to listen to those, unfortunately, not like my site. It looks pretty good, but then it's got you know the kind of counter cult articles that go along with with many apologetics ministries, and unfortunately, what happens is you get someone who has a problem with a particular doctrine that many Christians believe and they kind of lump it in with cultic doctrines and reply to it uh, in as as such. In particular, I'm looking at an article by the Reverend Keith Gibson on Dominion Theology. Now, Dominion Theology, for those who aren't familiar with the term, is basically another name for post-millennialism. It's the view held by a number of Christians throughout history um, Jonathan Edwards being one of the more famous ones that comes to mind. And it's the view that prior to the second advent of Christ, before Christ returns, the kingdom of God 
manifested in the church will grow in influence in the world uh, rather than diminish as in some pessimistic views where the world is just doomed to get more and more evil until Jesus returns and there's hardly any Christians hardly any you know church to to, to meet him when he comes dominion theology is that the kingdom of God will grow to a place of dominion so that the world will progressively become more and more godly when Jesus uh, before Jesus returns and so effectively societies countries nations governments everything will be transformed um, this 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 man Keith Gibson doesn't think much of dominion theology but rather than simply address the issue that is dominion theology he spends virtually the whole article or many parts of the article rather not the whole thing that's misleading many parts of the article attacking heretical Pentecostal prophets, and I'm not saying Pentecostals are heretical, but the ones that were heretical, you know, like William Branham, anti-Trinitarians and such, they also held to a kind of dominion theology, so he spends much of his time attacking false prophets and associating the movement with these people. And of course, if you have a problem with these heretical Pentecostal movements, you'll lump dominion theology in with it and denounce it. That's kind of misleading. It, it it put a bad taste in my mouth. I no longer have the kind of interest in the Apologetics Resource Center that I might have once had. I mean, D Dominion theology, post-millennialism, is thoroughly conservative in its Christian history. B.B. Uh, Warfield, um, Jonathan Edwards. It's interesting that you know on staff at Apologetics Resource Center are largely Baptists and Presbyterians. Well, you know, is he is he is he happy with the thought of lumping a Presbyterian theologian like B.B. Warfield in with William Branham? I think that should have been thought out a lot more carefully because now you've got some dude denouncing an orthodox belief on the grounds that heretics held it, which is a pretty silly idea, in my opinion. So I give them a mixed review. I'll be checking them out with an eye of suspicion. I really don't have much more to say today. <laughs> it's 2.47 in the morning. I'm going to finish this episode up now and go to bed. I hope you found the talk interesting. I welcome your feedback and comments and questions, as well as, and this is something I must mention, I have to come up with a new subject every time I prepare a podcast episode, so I absolutely welcome your suggestions for subjects to be covered. I know that a couple of you have made some suggestions which I'll be looking into and and thinking about. <laughs> if you have anything that you'd like me to talk about, any issues you'd like to be covered, please drop me a line, info at beretta-online.com or just comment at the blog and reply to this podcast entry. That would be fine as well. Love to hear from you. Also, any mail or feedback I would be very keen to have and I'll put you on the show. Also, and this is a new thing, if anyone would like to do some co-hosting with me, if you I like mind or you just think that this show is the kind of thing that you'd be good at, then drop me a line. Let's talk about it. Let's see what we can come up with. That's something I would definitely be interested in with the right person, of course. On that note, episode 18 now draws to a close. I'll see you again in episode 19. Until then, stay safe, be well. It's farewell from... Say hello to my little friend!